Fusion, the international science radio show. We have a bouncer and the doors of perception. The good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Sit back and relax while we inject weird and wonderful science directly into your brain. I'm Ian Wolfe. On this edition we'll feature Daughter of Time, Crime Physics and Little Naughties. But first up, here's the news. People say it's the 20th anniversary of the invention of the World Wide Web by Sir Tim Berners-Lee, and they're saying they couldn't live without email and how grateful they are to Sir Tim for the internet. And of course, those people are wrong. The World Wide Web is not the internet. Modems to run data over phone lines were used by IBM in 1958 at 110 bits per second. The internet was invented in 1962 and successfully connected distant computers in 1968 and sent its first email in 1971. So email is 42 years old and the internet is 45, and sending data over copper phone lines is 55. The first dial-up bulletin board in 1978 introduced the culture of user-generated content, which extended to the academic network with Usenet News in 1980 and Fidonet in 1984. Actually, it's more extreme than that, because almost all of the modern internet experience was demonstrated on December 9th, 1968, by Douglas Engelbart in his presentation, A Research Center for Augmenting Human Intellect. Prior to this demo, computers had simple, text-only monochrome display terminals and were used mainly for running calculating software for the military and scientists. Douglas Engelbart, in what has become known as the mother of all demos, showed the world computers with a graphical user interface made up of windows and manipulated by a computer mouse connected to remote computers. He demonstrated word processing with an on-screen cut and paste method instead of cutting and pasting paper, video conferencing, hypertext, hypermedia, and collaborative editing in real time. You can watch the entire NLS online system demonstration video online. So if the internet, email, hyperlinks and interactive online multimedia were invented over 40 years ago, just what was it that Sir Tim did 20 years ago? Sir Tim Berners-Lee worked at the CERN Particle Accelerator in Switzerland in 1989, and he was frustrated that he met many brilliant people he wanted to collaborate with, but they all used different formats for their documents and figures so they couldn't share their knowledge and insights very well. This wasn't just frustrating to Sir Tim personally, he could see it was slowing scientific research around the world. The important thing wasn't just to have a new document type that everyone kept to, but to foster the culture of sharing and working together. In 1990, Sir Tim took the world of hypertext that had existed since the 1960s and merged it with the internet's server-client model, creating hypertext markup language HTML, Hypertext Transfer Protocol, HTTP, and a way to find documents, Universal Resource Locators, URLs. He wrote the first web server and web browser on a Next Unix workstation. Next was the computer Steve Jobs developed after he'd been kicked out of Apple. So what was the big thing in 1993? What happened 20 years ago? In 1993, 
CERN released the source code of the web server and browser free to the world without any need to pay a license fee. It was a victory for the open source movement and stopped political attempts to make the new World Wide Web closed, proprietary and expensive. Anyone can create and run a web page, a web server or a web browser and we can all share knowledge, insights, intuitions and collaborate internationally. We're celebrating that 20 years ago the World Wide Web was made free for humanity. There's room on the web for everyone. So Tim was knighted in 2004 by Queen Elizabeth II for this achievement. So Tim is now working on building the semantic web, web pages with information about the information, metadata, embedded in the pages so that software can more easily find for us exactly the information we need. New York artist Heather Dewey Hagborg is collecting people's DNA from randomly discarded hair, cigarette butts and chewing gum, extracting and amplifying the DNA and using software to profile how their genes affect the shape of their face and the look of their skin. Then she prints a 3D sculpture of their imagined face on a 3D printer. Of course, since the DNA is collected long after the owner has left, she doesn't know how true to life the sculptures of the faces really look. Except, of course, for her self-portrait. The 30-year-old PhD student is studying electronic arts at the Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute in Troy, New York. Her Stranger Vision series consists of 3D printed faces mounted on a plaque above a sample container with the DNA she collected and a description and photograph of where it was found. The DNA she extracts can tell her about the person's ancestry, gender, eye colour, propensity to be overweight, and other traits related to how their face looks. She doesn't know the age of the people she's genetically stalking, so she sets the computer profile to imagine that they're all 25 years old. If you're listening in New York, you can see the sculptures on display at the Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute on May 12th. She's taking part in a policy discussion at the Wilson Center in Washington DC on June 3rd and will be giving a talk with a pop-up exhibit at the Genspace Biological Hacking Space in Brooklyn on June 13th. The QF Gallery in East Hampton, Long Island will be hosting an exhibit from June 29th to July 13th, as will the New York Public Library next year from January 7th to April 2nd. In this instalment of The Daughter of Time, Gina Satori profiles Nantucket's most famous daughter, 19th century astronomer Mariah Mitchell. especially need imagination in science. It is not all mathematics, nor all logic, but is somewhat beauty and poetry. Welcome to The Daughter of Time. We'll be looking at the life and career of Mariah Mitchell, who lived from 1818 to 1889. An astronomer and educator, she was the first woman to be elected a member of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences, and also of the American Association for the Advancement of Science. Mitchell was also invited to become Professor of Astronomy 
and director of the observatory at Vassar College in New York, and devoted the later part of her life to the higher education of women. All this, plus two honorary doctorates of letters and an honorary PhD, with a formal education that ended when she was 16. Mariah Mitchell, as you might guess from all that, led a life which for a 19th century woman was a little unconventional. This was no doubt partly due to her parents. Her father was at different times a cooper, a school principal and a banker, and at all times an amateur astronomer. Her mother had worked in two different libraries in order to read all the books they contained. Mitchell's formal schooling ended when she was 16, but she stayed on to assist her former teacher, the reformist educator C.S. Pierce, who, to quote him, saw in her the quality of self-discipline together with the rare insight which makes the difference between a creative life and the prosaic existence of a mere fact collector. At the same time, Mitchell, in turn with her nine siblings, was helping her father with his astronomy. In 1835, when she was 17, Mitchell opened her own school. Her approach was, well, unusual. School might begin before dawn so that the students could watch birds. It might extend late into the night so they could watch planets and stars. The following year, though, she was offered and accepted the post of librarian at the new Nantucket Athenaeum, as it offered her more time for private study. It also, according to one source, enabled her to influence the reading of the young people in town. If she saw that boys were eagerly reading a certain book, she immediately read it herself. If it was harmless, she encouraged them to read on. If otherwise, she had a convenient way of losing the book. In November, when the trustees made their annual examination, the book reappeared on the shelf, but the next day it was again lost. While keeping a close eye on the reading material of the young, Mitchell was making good use of her free time and the excellent observing conditions of Nantucket. In October 1847, she discovered a new comet. Her father wrote to the head of Harvard Observatory, but his letter was delayed, and in the meantime, astronomers in England and Rome also reported the comet. After a year of debate and discussion, Mitchell was eventually credited with the discovery. In the following years, she was honoured as a leading astronomer in both America and Europe. She was elected the first woman member of several prestigious scientific organisations. She worked as a computer, which meant a slightly different thing in those days, for the American Ephemeris and Nautical Almanac, and also for the US Coast Survey, making measurements that helped in the accurate determination of time, latitude and longitude. She also travelled abroad, initially as the chaperone to a young heiress, but when the girl had to return home because the family fortune had dissolved, Mitchell continued on by herself anyway. In 1865, Mitchell became Professor of Astronomy and Director of the Observatory at the newly founded and prestigious women's college, Vassar. She considered the prevailing view that women were unsuited to studying science and mathematics to be nonsense. In fact, she argued, their limited training in the delicate arts of needlework and watercolour painting could make them better astronomical observers. The fine needlework and embroidery, she wrote, teach them to measure small spaces. The same delicacy of eye and touch is needed to bisect the image of a star by a spider's web 
as to piece delicate muslin with a fine needle. The small fingers, too, come into play with a better adaptation to delicate micrometer screws. But Mitchell didn't think women should be restricted to the role of observer and technician. She believed that they could also excel in the heart of astronomy, mathematics. Although Mitchell was adamant in her conviction that astronomy transcended observation, it is not clear whether she should be credited with being a theoretical astronomer herself. Her published works indicate her knowledge and competence in observational astronomy, in the history of science, and in education rather than in theory. Her published works, on the other hand, show speculation, creativity, and at least the beginnings of theory. Throughout her career, even as the director of an observatory, Mitchell was hampered by a lack of adequate equipment. Curious, speculative and questioning, Mitchell sought explanations for what she observed, which is the basis of science, but she never herself developed a systematic theoretical framework. She chose instead to devote herself to the education of women, deciding that her talents would be of most use in this area. She argued that because so few women had had the education necessary to develop their talents in science, it was hardly fair to compare the scientific achievements of men and women, and suggested that funding and facilities for women should be improved before any judgment was made about their abilities. As well as her three honorary degrees, Mitchell had a crater on the moon named after her, and after her death in 1889 a society was established in her honour. But perhaps her most important, though less easily measured achievement, was the education of a generation of women. That was Gina Satore from the Diffusion Archives with the daughter of time, Mariah Mitchell. You're listening to Diffusion Science Radio. Send emails to science at diffusionradio.com. We're brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network and podcast over the internet on www.diffusionradio.com. And now a story from the dial-up days of 20 kilobits a second, where the sound quality is good, but not as good as we'd like. Dr. Uta Volmer-Connor from the Department of Human Behaviour at the University of New South Wales with Dr. Dennis Burnham and Christine Kitamura from the University of Western Sydney investigated the phenomenon of baby talk and pet talk. Their study was published in Science magazine under the title What's New Pussycat? in 2002 and Marion Carruthers spoke to her about this strange language. Hi, Dr. Val McConnor. Could you give us a quick description of what baby talk is? Yeah, hello. Um, baby talk, probably if you want to formally explain it, is like a very special speech register that we're using particularly when we are addressing babies. And uh, it's not unique just to mothers or to parents, but just about anyone. If you see a very cute baby in the supermarket, you would talk like that and, and uh, you know, you have some sound files to listen to how we're uh, raising our pitch in the voice and we have a special undulation, like, oh, my little darling, isn't that gorgeous? Okay, that's enough. So, uh, what did your study look at? 
Well, we had uh, a very close friend of mine, Professor Burnham, or Dennis as I call him, um, and myself, we had a conversation about baby talk and what the purpose of baby talk was. And a paper had recently come out that seemed to indicate that when people talk, baby talk, they do a very special thing with their vowels. And they do that in, in all kinds of different languages. So they seem to be stretching out vowels like sheep, when they speak like that. And um, my friend Dennis was convinced that this was there to teach the baby <clears throat> about the vowels or the native vowels in the language so that it could cotton on better about speaking. And I kind of thought about this and said to him, look, I really think this is... Um, how shall I put it politely? <laughs> it was his bullshit crap. Yeah. I, I kind of thought it was really not what it was all about because I have a cat called Siegfried and I've been speaking to him in this exact same fashion for 20 years and he has as yet not learned English in, as a consequence. So I thought you know clearly what this is all about since we are talking to animals, sometimes to lovers even and to babies in that way, that it really is meant to be more to bond, to, to say that we love them and possibly perhaps also to get their attention. So how did you do this? Well, we thought that the best way would be to round up a group of mothers who had both a baby and an animal and that they loved and uh, then collect speech samples when they were speaking to their baby and when they were speaking to their pet and then also when they speak to a kind of a neutral adult. And we gave them each three toys that um, kind of made the people sp speak the vowels we were interested in. So there was a shoe, a sheep, and a shark. And, uh, yeah, and we basically just asked them sort of in natural play situation to record a bit of speech. Okay, so I believe you found that when adults talk to infants, there's this thing called vowel hyperarticulation. What is that? Well, that's like I said earlier, it seems to indicate that they're teaching about the vowels. They're basically just stretching out the vowel space. So they don't say just, oh, look at that nice sheep. They say, look at the sheep. So they're pronouncing the vowel specifically. But this didn't happen in pets. Didn't happen as much. If you listen to a sample of pet-directed talk and baby-directed talk, to the ear it sounds identical, like you can't. And we often do that in public talks. We fool people by playing a sample. Someone's spoken to their puppy and, and people think it's a baby. But when you uh, analyze this, you know, in, in with very complicated kind of methods, you analyze the kind of... Um, She's <laughs> not quite sure. The floor and something they call that's Dennis's area. When uh, w then you can sort of uh, in on finer analysis, you can actually tell that there was more stretching of the vowel space than there is with animals. So there you have it. It turns out there's a perfectly good explanation behind adults talking and baby talk. Yes, there is. That was Marion Carruthers from the twenty kilobits per second archives speaking to Dr. Uta Volma Connor about baby talk. Humans exchange genes with other humans by having sex, and through Darwin's law of natural selection, this has led to evolution. Bacteria break these rules by exchanging genes outside their species with different kinds of microorganisms and 
deep in our bowels, with us. Michael Archer, Dean of Science at the University of New South Wales, explained to Marion Carruthers and I how bacteria in your body are having little naughties in the dark. Where there are certainly cells, bacterial cells, that are actively exchanging chromosomal information with the cells of our body. So these are prokaryotes, the simplest kinds of organisms, basically having little naughties, if you like, yeah. cellular naughties, with the cells of, of eukaryotes, the so, more so-called advanced organisms, and creating hybrid cells that are viable. So, you know, this kind of, and this, when, when you think people worried about genetic engineering, oh my God, you know, what if, what if we take this cell and we mix it with this cell of, a, of the same species and everybody gets their knickers in a knot? Naturally, there are organisms across whole kingdoms here that are experimenting with little naughties in the dark. And this is, genetic engineering is the reason we're here. It just seems to me so silly not to recognize the fact that blind genetic engineering, and who would approve of that in an ethics proposal? You know, we'll just keep trying everything without any sense of what we're doing, as opposed to what's really the exciting frontier, which is strategically managed genetic engineering for a purpose, you know, within the confines of experimental procedures that are, are reliable. And, and to have to run the gauntlet to do that strikes me as amusing, when right in our own guts, the very people who are prohibiting it are doing experiments that would never approve in an ethics uh, committee, you know, and it's going on in their gut, and nobody got permission to do that. So all the time, bacteria and other microorganisms are exchanging genes with our own body cells, and which are then changing as a result. So it would appear. I mean, one of the, the interesting outcomes of the Human Genome Project, is still quite controversial, was to identify large slabs of the human genome that don't appear to belong to us. So, yeah, we have the, these retroviruses and things that are actually um, plugging or unplugging strips of DNA from one organism into another. We are the result of, of, of uh, three and a half billion years of this kind of blind, mad scientist stuff that is part of the natural world. Now, we're not going to say that we're a terrible outcome of this. We're the disaster that demonstrates you should never allow genetic engineering to occur. We're pretty proud of us. And yet, we're the product of that without anybody actually working their way through it and strategically managing the process. So, it seems to me nuts to, uh, to turn away from this frontier and say, no, we should all leave it to blind chance rather than actually become more proactive about improving aspects of it. There, there's a shrew called Hero's Shrew. This is shrew has always impressed me. It's a little tiny mammal, a little bitty little thing. But Frank, you could almost drive a tractor on top of that shrew and it would just shrug because it has a backbone that has about nine different interlinking systems. That animal is indestructible. <laughs> and when you think of all of the humans who suffer from problems with backs, um, and I think, well, how many genes make up here, you know, that cause the, the vertebrae of the hero's shrew to do this super strengthening? Um, what if it's five genes? Would it be so terrible? to see what happens if you translocated them and added them to the human genome and suddenly had nobody having bad backs, nobody snapping their back if they happen to be stupid enough to dive in the water and hit their head, no supermens in, in um, you know, wheelchairs. Is this such a bad thing? But of course, we, uh, we are driven in society today by the, the principle of, of minimizing risk and therefore we don't do things rather than take the chance that the outcome might not be something that we want. I, it's a terrible thing to me, the, uh, the importance of being able to trial these things 
uh, is part of what science is all about. It, it, and nature has got us to this point, invited us, showed us the tools it's used, in effect, and how dumb would we be not to then say, well, thanks. You know, it's like, like somebody doing work for you on a computer uh, and not showing you how it's done. You know, what's the point of that? They need to show you what they've done, invite you to get involved, write your own specific programs. Well, we're at that threshold now. And I think we're mad if we turn our back on the ability to improve so many things about ourselves, about our relationships with the planet, and the future of the planet by taking a little responsibility here in the steerage of this system rather than just leaving it to blind chance. That was Michael Archer, Dean of Science at the University of New South Wales, talking about horizontal gene transfer, Little Naughties in the Dark, with Marion Carruthers and me. Well, of course, even scientific facts are not perfectly exact, but they are as exact as it is humanly possible to make them at the time. It's a scientific fact, a scientific fact. It has to be correct, it has to be exact, because it is, because it is a scientific fact. And that's all from us this week on Diffusion. Would you like to join us? We need more people contributing stories to Diffusion. You can send your contributions, opinions, congratulations, standing ovations, gasps of amazement, and helpful suggestions to science at diffusionradio.com. That's science at diffusionradio.com. And please do send us an email so we know you're listening and would like to hear more episodes. Please go to our Diffusion Science Radio Facebook page and tell us what you'd like to hear. Contributing to the program this week from the Diffusion Data Vault were Gina Sartore and Marion Carruthers. I produce Diffusion, which is broadcast around Australia on the Community Radio Network and syndicated on the National Science Foundation's Science360 internet radio station. Subscribe to our podcast on the Diffusion website, www.diffusionradio.com. That's www.diffusionradio.com. I'm Ian Wolfe. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more science wondering next week on Diffusion Science Radio. Looking at the URL, the first thing that sticks out is the colon. And how about a slashing or cutting sound for the slashes? To complete the experience, we might throw in the HTTP and maybe some kind of download sound. www.diffusionradio.com
Lachlan Watmore on guitar. Ha, 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 ha.